Who's really pulling the political strings in this place we call reality? Yet another phrase has been deemed offensive. And how indie films get made. This is the Propaganda Report's Drive Time News Blast. I am Brad Binkley. I want to start today with a follow-up on something from yesterday's show. My friend who joined us, Ian, the actor, he texted me this afternoon an image that was from an Actors Collective Instagram account that has 40,000 followers. And on the image, they had some text that posed a question to their followers. And the question that they posed, and I'm going to put this up on screen here so those watching can see it. They asked this. They said, question of the day. Are you an out-of-work actor if you're an actor who is currently not working? Or is that term a thing of the past? Is the term out-of-work actor an offensive thing? Thoughts. Scrolling through the comments here, it appears that the answer to that question is, yes, of course, obviously, out-of-work actor is an offensive thing. So go ahead and put that in your your list of phrases that you're not supposed to say anymore. Out of work actor, now inappropriate. So next time you encounter what was formerly known as an out of work actor, perhaps refer to them as an actor on hiatus or an actor seeking new opportunities or maybe a transitioning actor. Or perhaps flip that around, make it an actor in transition. You don't want to confuse anybody. I don't know. Just workshop it. Figure out the best thing to call and let me know, because I don't know. And now another filmmaking news. The Verge reports that while Screen Actors Guild and Writers Guild of America's ongoing labor strikes have brought production on most Hollywood movies and shows to an indefinite stop, filming on the fourth season of a show called The Chosen which is a guy named Dallas Jenkins' historical drama series about Jesus Christ, is reportedly continuing because it is not associated with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. The production was granted an exemption by SAG-AFTRA due to it being a truly independent production. The exemption, I believe, allows the union actors who are in the film to continue working on that production so they don't have to walk off. And the project is said to be the first ongoing project to successfully secure a production pass due to its not being affiliated with the AP, AMPTP. Sounds like a rap, which is that Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which that is the trade association that represents the studios. So here's how The Chosen was, produ- or was got created. And this is the short of it. And this is useful information for anyone who is interested in getting some sort of production made without having to worry about all the Hollywood stuff. The guy who wrote and directs it, that Dallas Jenkins guy, he wanted to make a multi-season streaming show that people could binge about Jesus. He wanted people binging some Jesus. So he filmed a short film and it was like 20 minutes long and he put it on Facebook as a concept pilot for the show to generate interest and create some buzz. And then he raised money through crowdfunding. They use something called equity crowdfunding, which is not normal type of crowdfunding. Equity crowdfunding means that the people who donate to the film receive a small ownership stake in that film. And if it grows, if the project succeeds, so does their ownership stake. And equity crowdfunding is subject to financial regulation. So that might not be for some, but you don't have to do equity crowdfunding. You do the, the regular type of crowdfunding. And the point is that making a film is no longer at the mercy of the Hollywood infrastructure. It has not been for a while. And once people can break free from that mindset of thinking it is and 
and put their resources towards doing it in ways similar to this, then I, I think that more independent stuff is going to get done. Film something with your buddies, edit it, put it together. Doesn't even have to be long. Doesn't have to be 20 minutes. You can make a three-minute trailer if you want. Rally some support around it online. Either crowdfund it once you do that or once you got enough buzz going on, then take it to somebody who, who's got a little bit of money and wants to invest into something like this. There's people out there that want to do it. It's not easy, but you ain't got to make the whole film. And you don't just present the script because people want to see something. You make that you know one little three, five minute, maybe 10 minute if you want to. I would go as minimal as possible. I'd make a trailer and use that as a launching pad. This is how stuff that isn't commissioned by the big studios get, gets made these days anyway, even by people who uh, are uh, prominent actors. So anyone can do it. The longer that this strike goes on, the more likelihood that this becomes the standard model of film and television producing. We might be looking at the future with this model here. All right, this next story shows how the pandemic really just scrambled some people's brains. I don't want to say beyond repair, but did some real damage. We all remember how during the pandemic, many people were put in a position where if they didn't get the vaccine, then they'd lose their job because their employer was being a jerk and mandating it. And understandably, people in that situation would often seek to get a medical or religious exemption so they would not have to lose their job and also not be forced to get the vaccine. And there's a story about In-N-Out Burger today where that whole situation is flipped on its head, except not with the vaccines, with masks. In-N-Out Burger has issued a new workplace guideline that's going to go in effect on August 14th that will ban its employees in several states from wearing protective COVID mask. The article from the San Francisco Chronicle says that the use of face coverings is currently optional for restaurant police, but starting August 14th, workers in Nevada, Arizona, Utah, Texas, and Colorado will not be allowed to mask as a preventive measure against spreading the coronavirus. According to the memo announcing the company policy change, the only exception granted will be for employees with valid medical reasons. <laughs> and the reason for doing this is a valid one in and of itself. The memo says, Dear Associate, we are introducing new mask guidelines that emphasize the importance of customer service and the ability to show our associates smiles and other facial features while considering the health and well-being of all individuals. I do have to say, it is a little offensive to me that In-N-Out Burger is not only telling its customers that they can't wear masks, they're also telling women to smile, which we know you're not supposed to do. The memo goes on to say that we believe this policy will also help to promote clear and effective communications both with our customers and our associates. They don't want employees hiding behind their mask and mumbling. That is very obvious and logical and shouldn't be seen as something that's extreme. Yet it is in 2023. And they probably also recognize that it's off-putting for most people to go into a fast food restaurant and try and order a burger from someone whose face is covered with a COVID mask. Effective August 14th, 2023, no mask shall be worn in the store or support facility unless an associate has a valid medical note exempting him or her from this requirement. They, they forgot they. Failure to comply with this policy may result in appropriate disciplinary action up to and including termination of employment. During the pandemic, 
Get the shot or lose your job. Now it's stop wearing the COVID mask, lose your job. That is unless you can provide an appropriate medical and exemption. If an individual actively seeking a doctor who can give them a medical exemption so that they can continue wearing their COVID mask at work isn't the perfect illustration of total brainwashing, I don't know what is. Now, given, I don't know if there are actually employees that are doing this. I hope not. I hope that they they just say, okay, fine. But if there are, I feel sorry that people feel like they, they need to do that. It's either an intense form of hypochondria that's been programmed into them or the thought of not having the mask to hide behind triggers extreme anxiety in them. Either way, these people, they need to be treated with compassion It's easy to want to mock them, but seriously, they've been mentally abused by Fauci and his gang of charlatans. And I hope that there's nobody actually doing this. I hope that this is kind of in and out burger, just poking fun at everything that went on during the pandemic, because I didn't realize how badass in and out burger was during the pandemic, or maybe I forgot about it. But apparently back in 2021, in and out burger in Contra Costa County, shuttered all five of its locations for indoor dining rather than complying with the county's vaccine mandate. With the executive president at the time, Arnie Weisinger, saying, we refuse to become the vaccination police for any government. It's unreasonable, invasive, and unsafe to force our restaurant associates to segregate customers into those who may be served and those who may not, whether based on the documentation they carry or any other reason. Bravo, in an out burger. And I hope they're just mocking that whole situation. I really hope they don't have employees feeling like they need to go get a secret guy. You know, people be like, do you know a doctor who can give me a medical exemption? I just truly hope there's not people going, do you know a doctor who can give me a uh, please let me still wear my mask exemption? All right. Next, I want to share with you all a new anti-Republican campaign ad running in Ohio paid for by the Progressive Action Fund that's not authorized by any specific candidate, and I think you'll see why when you watch the ad. With some background, there is uh, on August 8th, there's going to be a vote in Ohio. People will be voting yes or no on something called Issue 1. If it passes, Issue 1 makes it more difficult to amend the Ohio Constitution. If not, obviously it doesn't. All I know is this. Republicans want people to vote yes. Democrats want people to, no- to vote no on Issue 1. And this ad encourages voters to vote no on it, to keep Republicans out of the bedroom. And it features a barely clothed young couple getting hot and heavy in the bedroom when right as they're about to do the deed, a creepy old Republican appears out of thin air, ruining their good time. Here's the ad. Do you have a condom? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, you can't use those. What are you talking about? Who are you? I'm your Republican congressman. Now that we're in charge, we're banning birth control. This is our decision, not yours. Get out of our bedroom. I won the last election. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to watch and make sure you don't do anything illegal. And then he holds the creepy stare and it says on screen, keep Republicans out of your bedroom. Vote no on August 8th. Paid for by the Progressive Action Fund. Not authorized by any candidates or candidates. Committee, I, I got to hand it to the guy playing the creepy Republican. He, he pulls off creepy, that's for sure. And for those listening, as a couple was getting it on and opening up the bedside drawer to try and reach for the condom, that's when the old guy appeared. This guy who looks like 
Adam Schiff, if he put his picture through one of those age-progressing apps, he leans in and snatches a condom out of the drawer before they could get their hands on it. What do you think? Is, is this an effective ad? Did they convey Republicans being in the bedroom well enough here to influence some people to vote no on this ballot? Has this situation ever happened to you before? Has a man in a full suit and tie ever just spontaneously appeared right as you're about to get some action, ruining the whole thing? Personally, I think it would have been more effective if the woman were about to put the condom on the man. She pulls his pants down, and instead of seeing his package like she expects, this old man pops out of the guy's crotch, snatches the condom right out of her hand, says the exact same line of dialogue, I'm just going to watch and make sure you don't do anything illegal. And then he puts the condom on his head, rolls it down over his face, blows it up until it explodes. I think that would have been more effective. I would vote no on issue one if that had been the ad. All right, before we get to the final story of the Drive Time News Blast, which is going to be about who's really pulling the strings of these puppets in government, I want to tell you about what we're going to talk about in the Drive Time News Blast XR, which is the subscriber-only portion of the show. I'm going to go through a bunch of other political campaign ads that have recently come out, and we're going to, we're going to grade them, we're going to analyze them. We're going to talk about them, including one that is another AI-generated ad coming from Ron DeSantis, which really starts to make you question what his role in this whole thing is, because he ain't going to win. If you want to get access to that subscriber-only portion of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and subscribe there today. What you will get along with the subscriber-only portion of the show is you will get this show, the DMB ad-free. I take out all of the ads for subscribers, and I put this portion of the show together with the XR, and it goes into your own private Patreon RSS feed, which you can pop into any podcast player that you listen on. And as soon as I upload it to Patreon, it will upload to your app. You can also help support the show by going to Apple Podcasts, wherever, iTunes, and leaving a five-star rating with a kind review that warms my heart because that stuff truly does motivate me and keep me going. So thank you for that, and thank you for everybody who has supported the show and continued to support the show. You're the only reason I can continue to keep doing this. You can check out the website at propagandafight.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Freedom Act Radio. You can find me on YouTube, youtube.com slash Brad Binkley, and on Rumble at rumble.com slash The Prop Report. And now on to the final story of the day. Okay, I want to talk about who's really in charge of things. Is it the president? Is it Congress? Or are there forces behind the scenes pulling the strings? I think the answer to that question is pretty obvious, but I want to explore it a bit today. Prolific propagandist Edward Bernays wrote in his 1928 book titled Propaganda that there are invisible rulers who control the destinies of millions. It is not generally realized to what extent the words and actions of our most influential public men are dictated by shrewd persons operating behind the scenes. Later in the same book, he said, If there were a national invisible cabinet ruling our destinies, a thing which is not impossible to conceive of, it would work through certain group leaders on Tuesday for one purpose and through an entirely different set on Wednesday for another. These are interesting admissions coming from an insider like Bernays, who worked as one of the governments in the corporate world's most reliable propagandists for seven decades and There was a news story recently that is a good illustration of what Bernays is talking about here. And it's also the reason why I watch so many of those boring think tank panel discussions, because they often tell you 
what the news is going to be before it becomes the news. The story I'm referring to is one that NBC News broke about how a group from the Council on Foreign Relations, all non-governmental officials we're talking about here, had been having secret clandestine meetings with Russian diplomats, one of which even included Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, about the war in Ukraine. According to NBC, at least one of these private U.S. citizens involved had traveled to Russia for at least one of these meetings, and Sergei Lavrov himself had traveled to New York for another one of the meetings, this one with the larger group of U.S. citizens. Attending the meeting on Russia's side, along with Lavrov, according to the story, were Russian academics, leaders from Russia's major think tanks, and others in the Russian foreign policy sphere, perceived as having President Vladimir Putin's ear or as being in regular touch with Kremlin decision makers. On the American side were Council on Foreign Relations Fellows Charles Kupchin and Thomas Graham, outgoing president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, and former CIA spy and expert on, quote, NATO issues, as the article puts it, Mary Beth Long. And the article implies that Lavrov was at one of the meetings and not at another. The one that he did not attend is an example of what's called track two diplomacy, which is defined as an unofficial and formal interaction between members of adversary groups or nations that aim to develop strategies to influence public opinion, organize human and material resources in ways that might help resolve their conflict. In track two diplomacy, the parties involved in the process are not official representatives of the conflicting sides, but are instead influential private citizens. In this case, those influential citizens on both sides are the academics and think tankers like Richard Haas and the others from the Council on Foreign Relations and the ones on Russia's side of things as well. Now, the meeting that Lavrov allegedly attended is an example of what's called track one and a half diplomacy, which is defined by the Carter Center and repeated in a United Nations paper on the subject as public or private interaction between official representatives of conflicting governments or political entities, such as popular armed movements, which is facilitated or mediated by a third party not representing a political organization or institution. The aim of such interaction is to influence attitudinal changes between the parties with the objective of changing the political power structures that caused the conflict. I thought that was interesting, especially the possibility of changing the political power structures that caused the conflict, which is going to be squarely on Putin's shoulders with the way at least they talk about it in our media. So the reason that the meeting with Lavrov would be classified as track one and a half is because it's the private citizens, a third party, meeting with an official government representative in him. Track one would just be official negotiations between governments involved. Another definition, it's a little bit simpler, but doesn't have as good of detail as that previous one that's in that same UN paper. It says that track one and a half is diplomatic initiatives that are facilitated by unofficial bodies, but directly involve officials from the conflict in question. This UN paper goes on to lay out a couple of purposes for this type of diplomacy. And it says that Track one and a half diplomacy helps world leaders who are stuck in difficult situations by providing them with an honorable way out of their problems. And track one and a half diplomacy is effective, it says, in opening channels of communication between conflicting nations and 
It also has that face-saving role for sitting heads of state. Presumably, Putin in this situation, if the other side of this would even allow that, which I don't think they would. More on that in a second. These types of non-government influential groups and influential private citizens sound a lot like the invisible rulers or invisible cabinet that Edward Bernays writes about in his book Propaganda and in many of his other books as well. Now, there's an interesting wrinkle to this story because Russia denies that the meetings happened, while Council on Foreign Relations outgoing president Richard Haas says that he was at the meetings. He confirmed being there while also saying this is in a Substack post that he made after the NBC story came out. He said that while he was present at the meetings, he would not go into detail about what may have been accurate or inaccurate in the NBC story because, quote, exchanges of this sort have the best chance of being useful if they are kept confidential. So who's lying here, Russia and Sergey Lavrov, or is Richard Haas here lying? What's going on? I don't know. I have no idea who's telling the truth. Is there a reason Lavrov would lie about such a meeting happening that he might have come over here and attended in New York? Well, according to Diplomat magazine, track 1.5 diplomats who often act covertly seldom get any of the credit when the final treaties or agreements are signed with the politicians taking all the credit. What they do, however, do these diplomats involved in these covert meetings is they will use the plausible deniability and deny all knowledge of the existence of the Track 1.5 diplomacy meeting if they are caught in an environment where Track 1 diplomacy dictates that they should not be having such meetings. Track 1, as I said, are official negotiations between nations, and right now, Track 1 discussions between U.S. and Russia and between Ukraine and Russia have come to a standstill, probably because they were sabotaged early on in this whole conflict. But that's a subject for another conversation. The suggestion here is that Lavrov might be denying that there were any meetings that he was involved in because perhaps he's not supposed to be having them right now. Maybe it goes against Russia's current foreign policy position. And Vlad would be pretty pissed off if he found out that he was undermining that foreign policy. You have secret meetings with with private U.S. off with the head. I'm not saying that 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 is what's true. I'm saying that that is what the implications of the way this story is being presented are. And this is assuming that Haas is telling the truth and Lavrov is lying. We could assume that Lavrov is telling the truth and and Haas and NBC News are making the whole thing up and perhaps they concocted this whole story to cause internal division in Russia to make Putin think that maybe a coup is afoot with his closest top officials turning against him. I I have no idea what the answer is. It's a psyop for sure, because if the meeting was truly intended to be secret, it would have remained secret. We know NBC News isn't exactly stepping outside the bounds of what they're supposed to be reporting, and there was definitely some coordination with them publishing that story and then Haas coming out and confirming it in part and then not saying much else about it afterwards. Some chicanery is going on. That's, that's the only thing we know for sure. And all of this chicanery illustrates the influence that these secret string pullers have behind the scenes. Now, Haas goes on to write in his Substack article. He says, I would say, though, that such meetings can be valuable opportunities to keep channels of communication open at moments when official interactions are either non-existent or unproductive and the stakes are high. Now, that sounds exactly 
like something that someone whose influence goes beyond that of that person's government might say, like they might be some sort of invisible ruler working behind the scenes, as Bernays described. And in the case of Haas specifically, this is why I watch these think tank panel discussions and play those clips on the show sometimes, because they tell us the news before the news becomes the news. When it comes to foreign policy, these are the people creating the news, which Bernays actually writes about creating the news in his previous book before propaganda called Crystallizing Public Opinion. I've played clips from many think tanks, specifically from the CFR and Richard Haas himself, where they say things, positions, policy ideas, whatever, that weeks or months later, Joe Biden is repeating verbatim as he introduces some new policy that he is claiming is his very own. It's never his own He didn't come up with it. It was cooked up in one of these think tanks long before it ever reached Joe Biden's mouth. One of the more recognizable examples of this, and this is one that originated from the World Economic Forum and Klaus, I believe, is the whole Build Back Better plan that Biden used to say. My Build Back Better plan, when obviously it was not his Build Back Better plan. Another example from just last week, I reported before the NATO meeting the type of deal that we were going to offer NATO, the so-called Israel plan, which is what ended up happening. You know, Biden had that meeting with Zelensky. They built up the drama when everybody knew what was going to happen beforehand. And the reason that I knew what was going to happen beforehand is because I read what the think tank said, Richard Haas specifically, what was going to happen beforehand. They laid it all out. Haas said specifically that Biden could offer the Israel type of deal to Ukraine, which is the exact talking point that Biden then in turn used in his interview on the eve of the NATO summit. Do the think tanks get it from the government officials or is it the other way around? It seems to go the other way around. I don't know what's true about this story. I think their end game is probably to remove Putin because that is what they have said in these think tanks and these panel discussions that Putin needs to be gone to welcome Russia back into the international world order. Maybe they are trying to bring Lavrov over to see if he wanted to help them achieve this goal, you know, so maybe he could survive the whole thing. That is, if it even happened at all. Either way, you see the influence that this unelected official and officials at the CFR, Richard Haas and others, are exerting from behind the scenes when it comes to international politics. And I'm not saying that these people have endless power or anything. That's not the point here. The point is just to give an example of what we all know is going on. You know, the string pullers behind the scenes attempting to make things happen that if they're successful, we later find out about these things from their puppets that are on our screens like Joe Biden. If we pay attention to the string pullers, all these think tankers that I'm talking about, then perhaps we can anticipate where they're going and throw a few wrenches in their plans, which I think that the public has been successful at doing because while these invisible rulers are always trying to influence us, they are not above being influenced and pressured themselves. And the good thing about modern society is that a dissenting public can force pressure on those behind the scenes because, you know, they want everyone connected to the Internet so that they can better propagandize us. That is true. But a consequence of that connectivity, of them being, being able to so easily reach us with our messages, is that we can also reach them. As much as they have tried to control the internet, they have been unsuccessful at doing so, and they are not immune to their own weapon. They're trying to solve that problem right now. I think because of their complete lack of understanding of the broader public, that they will continue to fail to do so the same way ESG has failed miserably.
All right, that's where I'm going to wrap up the show for today. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Stick around for the DMBXR if you are a subscriber, and we will talk to you next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.